thank you so much. I mean, you welcome me that way, and I really... Oh, I'm sorry, ladies, that was, that was for you. Uh, today, we want to start with an attitude of gratitude. I think that we have so much to celebrate. I'm super thankful because we have a generous God, and He has made us part of a generous church. So, as you remember, uh, a few weeks ago, we called the church to give above and beyond what we usually give uh, for something that we call Trust Give Sunday. And if you remember, we said that we were, we were asking the Lord to give us extra so we could do extra things. So I'm here to share with you that, first of all, we are celebrating that about 500 household gifts, uh, givers uh, contributed to this thing. Uh, we are celebrating that the Lord provided some money, enough money, for us to pay some of our loan principles, uh, to do some campus updates here in the, in the building, to expand more our missional impact, and for us to start moving in the direction of becoming a church for the church. Listen up. So by God's grace, because he is a generous God, and because we are part of a generous people, the Lord gave us $1.5 million in three weeks for the glory of his name. So we want to say thank you. Thank you for your love and your sacrifice. Thank you for being part of this beautiful place called Wheaton Bible Church. And thank you because we all together get to contribute to what the Lord is doing in this creation. Amen? Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, we are grateful for your mercy, your grace, your love. We are grateful, Lord, that you gave us extra so we can continue to do the things that you have called us to do and be the people that you called us to be. I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom, Lord, to manage the money well, to put it in the right places, to uh, be led by the Spirit and how we use this money for the glory of your name. I'm so grateful, Lord, that we're part of this church. And we are so grateful that at the end of the day, we do all of these things, not because we're good or better than anyone else, but because you are good and better than anyone else. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says... Let's start by standing and singing to the Lord we love.
Good morning, church family. My name is Bill Oberlin. I serve as one of the pastors on staff here. And as we continue in worship this morning, we want to look toward the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all of humanity to myself. Uh, as we come uh, to the time of communion, as, as Hannibal said, uh, this is a morning for gratitude. And, and communion is a time for us to remember and a time to express our gratitude, our thanks. Seven centuries before Christ, the, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah foretold in chapter 53 the intercession of God's Messiah, what he would do on our behalf. Listen to the words of Scripture from Isaiah 53. Surely he himself took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But in fact, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace was on him, was carried on his shoulders. And by his wounds, we are made whole. We are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon Messiah the iniquity of all of us. As we come this morning, we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And if you have come to understand that sacrifice and to receive His mercy personally for yourself, this table, this moment is for you. If you're still considering that, if you're still thinking about your relationship to Christ and your surrender to Him, then this is a time to reflect but a time to, to wait, to withhold from participating. But we're invited to his table this morning, not because we have merited his favor, but precisely the opposite. Because we stand in need of his mercy. Mercy secured for us at the cross. And so this morning, if you have received his mercy, I want to invite you to take communion cup. You'll notice at, at the, the smaller uh, circle, at the top is the bread. Um, in just a moment, we'll begin by taking the elements, but I want to pause for a moment, give you a, an opportunity to reflect so that we come to the table in reverence.
On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it. And he said to his disciples, his friends, this, this bread represents my body which will be broken for you. And he invited them to all eat of the bread. As you turn your cup over, Jesus said to his disciples that night as well, as he held forth a cup, this cup represents my blood which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And he invited his disciples to drink of the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your love for us that compelled you to stand in our place, to shoulder the punishment due us that you might extend in turn your mercy, your forgiveness. We give you thanks. Amen.
No more. We're never like a, ch we're a child without a home. It's so beautiful. Let's stand and continue to sing.
earth and heaven be one. Colossians 3 encourages us to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so that's when every once in a while we say to each other, may the peace of Christ be with you. So we're going to do that now. So find someone that you are sitting near you. You can say, let the peace of Christ be with you. And please be seated. This morning, we want to continue in worship with the giving of our tithes and offerings. At this time, I'd like to invite our ushers to come to the front. And as a reminder, you can give online at www.wheatonbible.org forward slash give. Thank you, Christy. <laughs> Uh, in the plates as they are passed, or you can always send a check to the church office. Uh, again, we're so grateful for your generous response to Trust Gift Sunday that allows us to move the needle forward in reducing our debt and investing in ministry. Um, ushers, you may pass the plates. Uh, for all the latest in Church family news, don't forget to check out our weekly news email, 27W. If you're not signed up for this already, you can scan the QR code uh, in front of you uh, or head to our church's website. Uh, as Hannibal mentioned at the beginning of the service, your Trust Gift Sunday generosity uh, strengthens our church's ability to invest in ministry. And many of you know that our church has a, a long uh, and strong DNA and mission to love the nations in Jesus' name. As we saw at Missions Fest and heard through inspiring stories in our Missions Fest classified event weeks ago, Christ's church is growing around the world and uh, it, it's growing in many cases remarkably so in places where his church is most fledgling, most persecuted, and least resourced. Trust Gift Sunday uh, is helping us as a church to, to pay off loans to free up more of our budget to invest, among other things, in what we would call strategic indigenous leaders. Alongside the missionaries we send out from our church, we also support gifted leaders in some of the world's most challenging contexts to reach their own fellow citizens with the gospel and build up Christ's church in their homelands. Thank you once again for your sacrificial gifts enabling us to do more of this. Uh, as an example of one of those leaders, uh, this morning I'm delighted to introduce to you a visiting uh, partner of our church, Pastor Pavel Tokarczuk. Since 2019, our church has supported Pavel in his work with Mission Eurasia, who's been our church's primary aid organization responding to the Ukraine crisis. 
Uh, Pavel is Russian, born in Siberia. His wife is Ukrainian, and Pavel's family currently lives in neighboring Moldova, uh, where the headquarters of Mission Eurasia for the region are located. Uh, Pavel, would you come and join me on the platform? Uh, this is actually Pavel's third visit uh, with our church, and uh, I want to invite Pavel, would you help us to grasp something of Mission Eurasia's uh, work in responding to the Ukraine crisis? Yeah, thank you again to have you, me here, and uh, Mission Eurasia uh, responded uh, right away since the war started and uh, so many people, millions and millions, were uh, fled Ukraine and uh, many of them were displaced in, inside of the country, maybe 11 million overall, like every fourth or sometimes every third. And we responded to give care, to give some food, to supply uh, local churches uh, in different countries where refugees fled, especially Poland, Ukraine itself already mentioned, and Moldova, where I am at right now currently. And uh, we were so happy that many churches responded to, um, to support, to help those who are in need. And uh, over 450,000 uh, people were reached by that uh, within the last 18 months. And we are so happy and so proud that God used us to... Um, to comfort people, to bring the peace, uh, and uh, to help them in many needs, material and uh, financial, or I mean uh, emotional. Mm. Pavel, thank you. That's, that's astounding that nearly half a million people have been supported uh, with essential needs and, and uh, aided spiritually also uh, in Ukraine since the beginning of the war. Um, now, for years you have served as the director of ministries for all of, your, of, all of Mission Eurasia in Russia. Uh, tell us a little bit about your leadership role uh, before the war and how that's continuing now. Right. Uh, for a number of years, actually two decades, I was in, in my home country, Russia, and uh, uh, developing many different outreaches, and especially among ethnic, uh, uh, unreached ethnic groups, and uh, among um, young professionals, uh, as we taught, as we trained uh, many young Christians uh, to uh, work, to do their ministry and the mission at work, at marketplace, at work, and uh, as well as different uh, outreaches and training. There were a number of them during uh, many years of my serving in Russia. But since the war started, me and my wife and our kids, um, we decided to respond to this need and move to Moldova, uh, where a lot of refugees, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, appeared to be there and to continue work and especially focus uh, to helping um, refugees that are there with their uh, spiritual material needs, counseling and so on. So we are right there and uh, God only knows where our will be next step. Mm -hmm. um, well, Pavel, we're so grateful for your leadership 
and your ministry. And if you think it might be worth hearing more from Pavel, I want to invite you back this evening in the chapel at 6 o'clock this evening. Uh, we'll learn more from Pavel. We also have visiting with us this weekend from Israel, one of our key partners, uh, Samer. And so an opportunity to hear from these two leaders in global hotspots. This evening, 6 o'clock p.m. in the chapel. Um, I want to invite Pastor Pavel to lead us in prayer this morning and then to read our scripture passage for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for your partnership. It's uh, so vital for our ministry, so we can do that together. We are not alone. We know that you are with us. We are so appreciate your partnership. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you brought us together this morning as we had this communion, as we remember that you suffered for us so we can, our sins can be, sa can be cleaned and we will be saved. Now we are praying for those who are in real need, those displaced, those that suffering in Ukraine because of the war and in Israel. We really pray for the shalom that will be upon each one of them, all of those people that right now scattered, struggling, losing a lot, and maybe lives. Please be with them. Please bring the word of God uh, to that they would hear and they would respond. Please know their needs and please uh, bless the local churches and local Christian leaders so they will be able to reach in the midst of difficult times. We praise your name, God, and thank you for this offering that church already had this morning and uh, that we will be hearing your word in Jesus name I ask Amen you can find our scripture for this morning on the page 162 of your discipleship journal and we'll be reading Matthew chapter 27 verses 11 through 70, 31. Would you please stand in reverence for the God's word? <clears throat> Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then the Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen, chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd get, had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? 
for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders pursued the crowd to the ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting now here, but that instead of an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barnabas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff on and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the rope and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love getting an extra hour of sleep at night. <laughs> and this morning I pray that as we dive into the scriptures, God would awaken us to the truth of his word. This morning uh, I'd like to touch on three points as we're in the home stretch of our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, there's so much we could talk about, uh, even from this passage, but I want to touch on three points. First, the shock of Jesus' silence. Secondly, the ironies of Jesus being judged. And thirdly, the depth of Jesus' humiliation. As we... As we enter into this passage, verse 11 says, Jesus stood before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And the governor asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Putting our passage for today in context, Jesus had been arrested the night before by the Hebrew religious leaders. He was accused and tried in the Sanhedrin, their religious court of over 70 ruling priests and elders, on the charge of blasphemy, of deeply insulting God by claiming to be the awaited Messiah, and the Sanhedrin found him guilty for his admission of that identity. While the religious leaders desired to put Jesus to death, the law uh, demanded that capital punishment could only be carried out by the ruling Roman state. They needed political permission to have this execution carried out. This passage of Gospels uh, of Matthew's gospel records that uh, Jesus was brought before the reigning Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Now he held his governorship for 10 years and was about five years or so into his term when Jesus came before him as ruler over Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside of Judea. Pilate held the authority to acquit or condemn and determine the punishment. With heated accusations, the elders and priests brought their case before Pilate, insisting that in proclaiming to be Messiah, Jesus was assuming Davidic kingship over the Jewish people. Blaspheming was such an audacious claim that he was Messiah, that he was king, and making himself a potential rival to Caesar. Pilate understood the political innuendo. And he asked Jesus, So what is it? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, the phrase that Pilate uses, king of the Jews, was, was essentially a, a condescending term. We only find Gentiles in Gospels Matthew using the phrase, king of the Jews, where, where the religious leaders would use the term um, king of Israel to refer to the Messiah. Are you the Jew king? Pilate asks. Jesus replies with a qualified assent. He uses the same words in answering that, that Jesus answered Judas when Judas says, somebody's going to betray you. Surely it isn't me. And Jesus said, uh, you have said so. In the Sanhedrin, when it was demanded of him, are you the Messiah? Jesus responded with the words, you have said so. As Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, you have said so. In essence, you yourself have uttered the words. Exasperated by Jesus' silence, the high priests condemned Jesus to death 
slapped him, beat him, drug him before Pilate, he's asked again, are you the king of Jews? Jesus says, essentially, you're the one who's spoken the words. Before Pilate, vehement indictments are pouring forth from the religious leaders, pressing for his execution. But Jesus does not offer a single counter or defense. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Pilate asked him, don't you hear what they're saying? Jesus makes no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. The shock of Jesus Silence. What do we make of it? Pilate's dumbfounded. Why isn't he defending himself? Why isn't he lawyering up to save his life? As one commentator remarks, silence was not a usual failing on the part of male Jewish defendants. It was also an embarrassment to Pilate's trial. Those accused in a Roman court were expected to defend themselves. But Jesus' shocking silence had been clearly chronicled seven centuries before it occurred. The prophet Isaiah, in the scripture we read during communion time, had announced that the Lord's servant, the Messiah, would take up our pain and bear our suffering. That while we would assume he was being punished by God, that he was some unfortunate or cursed one, in fact, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We, like sheep going astray, have turned to our own way, but the Lord was laying on the Messiah, all of the inequities, all of the injustices done by all of us. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so Jesus did not open his mouth as Isaiah seven centuries before had foretold it would unfold. In his letter, the Apostle Peter, 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, writes to believers in Asia Minor saying, Christ suffered for you and he also left you an example that you should imitate. And, and in these following verses, Peter is, is drawing from, he's quoting from Isaiah 53 again and again. Peter says, quoting Isaiah, he committed no sin or he committed no violence, 
and deceit could not be found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats to those causing his suffering. Instead, here's the summary. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, was saying, this is going to be handled by a higher authority. He bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Again, quoting Isaiah, for by his wounds you get healing. You were like sheep going astray, but now, fellow believers, you've returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Chicago pastor A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, whoever defends himself will have himself for his defense. But let that person come defenseless before the Lord and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. Someone once paraphrased Tozer's advice in this way, and I love this, don't spend an, ex- an inordinate amount of energy defending yourself. God will defend you if you're worth defending. And if not, you're wasting your time. Jesus' silence was startling. Are, are you, like me, rather quick to defend yourself? When someone says something uh, or you experience a slight, do you let it ride or are you quick to react? How different is, is Jesus in his acceptance of the Father's will, even in the face of others' spiteful blame and contempt and abuse, how unlike me, how unlike you, is Jesus in his response. The one who, who preached, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, had that flowery philosophy put to the test. And shockingly, it stood. Jesus was silent before his accusers, even facing execution. And when he did speak on the cross, he uttered about his enemies who put them there, Father, forgive them, for they don't, realize they don't get what they are doing. But Jesus knew clearly what he was doing. Jesus knew clearly what he was doing, loving his enemies 
and trusting the judge of all. Well, we move from the shock of Jesus' silence to the ironies of Jesus' judgment. As we continue in Matthew 27, we read that it was the governor's custom at the festival to release one prisoner chosen by the crowd as a concession or favor to them. And they had in custody a well-known prisoner uh, named uh, Jesus Barabbas. And Pilate asked the crowd, well, which one do you want? Jesus who's called the Messiah or Jesus Barabbas? And the scripture says Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that the religious leaders had handed Jesus over. And as he sat on the judge's seat, his wife reinforced the message of Jesus' innocence saying, have nothing to do with condemning this man to death. I've, I've been greatly distressed by a dream of warning that came to me. Among the Gospels, it's only Matthew who tells us that the other prisoner's first name was Jesus. The other Gospels simply refer to him as Barabbas. Jesus, in Hebrew, Yeshua, or Joshua, was a common Hebrew male name. Uh, the man's last name, Barabbas, meaning son of Abbas, sounds curiously close to Barabba, which would be son of the father. Maybe we can call this guy um, Jesus, son of his dad, or Jesus, chip off the old block. And then there's this other one called Jesus, who is Jesus Bar Yusuf, Jesus, the son of Joseph. Jesus Bar Yusuf, Jesus, the son of the carpenter, was called the Messiah, and and he got around. But Matthew tells us that Jesus Bar Abbas, Jesus son of his dad, was also well known. The word Matthew uses here, well known, could also be translated notorious. Someone who is likely both well loved and well hated. The Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John tell us the reasons for Jesus' Barabbas' imprisonment. His rap sheet read, robber, terrorist, murderer. The drama continues to unfold was taking place at the Praetorium of Jerusalem, which was Pilate's private palace. Ancient sources tell us that the Praetorium was the former palace of Herod the Great, the Jewish king visited by the wise men from the east, the Jewish king who sought to execute the infant Jesus. That's the palace where this judgment is taking place. The pavement and the bema, 
or judgment seat, and one of the gates of the praetorium have been excavated and you could go visit it today. Verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Well, which one of the two do you want? asked the governor. Barabbas comes the answer. What do I do then with the Messiah? Crucify him. Why? Just crucify him. Pilate sees he's getting nowhere that instead of him ruling the, this trial, a riot is about to ensue. So he takes a bowl of water, he washes his hands in front of the crowd, and he says, I'm absolved of this man's blood. You are the ones who want him condemned. I'm innocent of this blood. And the people answer, literally, his blood on us and our children. We take the responsibility for this execution. Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, walks free. And Jesus, the Messiah, is handed over to be crucified. As I think about the outcomes of Jesus' trial, three things are clear. Number one, that the leaders in the crowd reject Jesus as their Messiah and King. Secondly, that Pilate declares Jesus guiltless. Hey, he's, he's a good man, but I'll condemn him anyway in acquiescing to the crowd. Thirdly, that that innocent man is sentenced to die by a means that is, by definition, excruciating. It seems to me there are some ironies in Jesus' judgment. There are two guys named Jesus. One is like his earthly father, the other is like his heavenly father. One steals and takes lives, the other gives and saves lives. One is a criminal, the other is upright. Pilate asks, which one do you want? And the crowd chooses the violent rebel over the compassionate teacher and healer. The crowd says, in, in, F, in essence, free the guy who's like us. <laughs> We're all sons of our fathers. And death to the so-called king. An innocent man is sacrificed and a guilty guy walks scot-free. Pilate asked the crowd, what then shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? As I think about it, given the stakes, that's kind of a question 
each of us has to answer. What then will I do with this Jesus who's called the Messiah? And if Jesus is who he says he is, then there's another logical question that follows, which is, what will he do with me? It seems awfully backward that a, a temporary governor over a mid-sized city and 2,000 square miles is questioning the authority and judging the fate of the eternal king of kings who created heaven and earth and holds authority over them both. The gov decides, I pick my immediate interests over his life. Yet ultimately, it was Jesus picking you and me over his fate. By his silence proving his love for us and a crowd shouting for his death. Jesus was on trial before Pilate, but Pilate will one day stand trial before Jesus. Are you and I clear on who rules and who will judge? Uh, this past February, I got to travel together with uh, Pastor Hannibal, um, Pastor Kyle, uh, Elder Josh Geary, to, among other places, Greece, and we visited ancient Corinth. Um, and while we were there, we visited a site in ancient Corinth where the Apostle Paul was once brought before the proconsul or governor of, Cor of Corinth and put on trial at a place called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat, which is a raised platform where the one in authority would take his seat and execute decisions, make judgments. It's the same word, Bema, that's used when it says Pilate sat down on the judgment seat. You see a picture next of, of a road leading up to that platform. At the top of that platform was the judgment seat, the Bema seat. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.10... You and I must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus stood before a Bema seat, but we will all stand before the Bema seat of Christ. As Michael Scott ineptly quotes in the office, how the turntables. Is anything more ironic than our petty selves presuming to judge Jesus?
we, we see the shock of Jesus' silence, we see the ironies of his judgment, and we see the depth of Jesus' humiliation. As we read in this final section uh, of, of Matthew's account, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. He was surrounded, overwhelmed, and abused. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, uh, stuck a staff in his right hand, and someone off in a corner cut some thorn branches from a tree and wove them into a makeshift crown and jammed it on his head. Each of these things intending to be a mockery of the Messiah's true majesty. You're a king, you say. I'm struck by the image of the crown of thorns. Think back to Genesis and, and we read in Genesis that when Adam and Eve uh, turn away from trusting God, when they turn away from trusting His goodness, that God says a consequence is that the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. The thorns are, are a symbol, a consequence of the curse. Deuteronomy in 21-23 says, any, anyone who is hung on a pole, any criminal who's executed hung on a pole, is under God's curse. And Galatians 3 gives us these striking words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the just law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. They knelt in front of Jesus and mocked him. Hail, Jew king. Who would sign up for this humiliation? Who would choose, I'll take this trauma? Who would concede to endure this abuse? Jesus, who wore the curse on his head so he could rain down blessing upon us in its place. 
Jesus who wore the curse on his head and hung cursed on the tree so that he could rain down a blessing for us instead of the curse we deserved. The righteous one took on a fatal punishment and the rebel walks free. This is the cross where God's justice and mercy meet. This is the great exchange. Wrapping up, the mockery, the abuse, the crucifixion of Jesus is either the most unfortunate end to a good-intentioned and innocent mere man, or it's the most courageous, astounding act of love by the one who is our God, by our sober and undeterred Savior who said, I will stand in your place that you can walk free. I'll wear the curse on my head so that in turn my heavenly Father can pour out the blessing promised to Abraham. I will bless every family of the earth through my seed. So what do I do with this? Do I reduce Jesus to a good but unfortunate man? Do I declare him good but say, like Pilate, I'm not going to risk my agenda or place among the crowd for you? Or do we believe him as Messiah and King and receive him as Savior and Lord? What can I do? What, what is any kind of reasonable response to Jesus' humiliation other than to humble myself? Because I can only look him in the eye if I bow before his great humility. The one who is boundless in his majesty and worth. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, our words are inadequate. To tell you, thank you. Lord Jesus, we bow in humility before you and as we receive your mercy, we ask you to change us 
by your Holy Spirit to become more and more sons of our Heavenly Father. To become more and more like you. Jesus, we welcome you and ask you to renew and restore us by your grace. Amen. Let's stand and ask the Lord to keep us near his cross that we might walk with him, remain humble before his amazing sacrifice. Just a couple of brief announcements. A uh, reminder that our parenting seminar is coming this Saturday. Uh, if you'd like to attend, make sure you register for the parenting seminar this week. Uh, also tonight, our friend Pavel, as well as Samer from the Holy Land, from Israel, will be with us. Uh, we invite you to the chapel at 6 p.m. Uh, let's receive now the benediction from Psalm 67. Lord God, may you be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine on us 
so that your ways may be known on earth, your rescue, your salvation among all nations. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent.